Welcome to the Book Club Girl podcast, where we chat about great books with awesome authors and you, our listeners, ask the questions. I'm Tavia Kowalchuk, coming to you from a closet in my apartment. This is the first episode we are recording during New York's social distancing mandate. The book I've most enjoyed reading while staying home is The Secret History of Wonder Woman by Jill Lepore. There is so much feminist action in this book. And I'm Eliza Rosenberry. I am also in a closet. I'm in my hall closet, and it's very dark in here. (laughs) Um, We hope everyone listening is safe and finding lots of time to relax and read. I just finished Writers and Lovers by Lily King, who's one of my favorite writers, and it was fantastic. I highly recommend it for um, social distancing reading. I've seen that all over Instagram. It's good. I highly recommend it. So on today's show, it's the tale of two neighboring sugar plantations before and after the abolition of slavery in this dramatic epic of estate owners in 19th century Barbados. New York Times bestselling author Lauren Willig joins us from her home in New York City to answer questions about her novel, The Summer Country. And now we present to you The Summer Country Abridged. It's 1854, and Emily Dawson arrives in Barbados to inspect Peverell's, a sugar plantation she has inherited from her grandfather, Jonathan Fenty. The thing is, no one knew anything about this plantation until the reading of the will, and no one understands why it was left to Emily. She is determined to learn about the plantation and its mansion, which was destroyed in a slave revolt in 1816. She ends up staying at Beckles, a neighboring plantation run by the intimidating Marianne Davenant. Marianne is a bridge between the narrative of 1854 and 1812, in which Charles Davenant is trying to free the slaves who work Peverell's, his plantation. What is the connection between the Peverell's and Beckles' estate? Charles soon falls in love with Jenny, Marianne's personal slave, and tries desperately to find a way to free her. Secrets are revealed and lives overturned as Barbados hurdles toward the slave revolt of 1816. Eliza, what did you think of this book? I found this book so immersive and the setting was so lush and brilliantly rendered and it was such a fascinating part of history that I didn't really know anything about. And the story was, you know, it's a multi-generational story and it's sort of these two timeline, these two parallel timelines, which I loved. And there's a line at the beginning of the novel that I highlighted and I kept coming back to, which one character says, you know, they, they first arrive on Barbados and one character is commenting on how, how small the island is and how close everything is together. And the other character says, everything is more immediate than one would imagine. And in that line, he's referring to, obviously, the geography of the island. But I kept coming back to it throughout the book because it also describes history, the recent history of the island, um, even though it seems very far away to new arrivals there, is quite closely linked to the reality that they're living today. And also the idea of family. You know, things are things are closer than than they first appear and there's a lot of secrets that are unspooled throughout the novel to that to that effect, which I really loved. What did you think of the book, Tavia? The last thing you mentioned was secrets. And that is the one thing my brain was like twisting around trying to figure out, you know, the answers to the questions that Emily has. And she's trying to figure out what happened to this plantation? Who are these people? How are they connected? Where do I fit in? 
what is my role? What do I want to do with my life? And and all of these things reveal themselves in a way that as a reader, it's very mysterious. There's some red herrings thrown in there. And even though this isn't a mystery, it's very purely a historical novel. The suspense of these secrets and the drama around them, like there's this one big reveal at the end um, where there was a character who like has a fever, there's a cholera outbreak, and like she's babbling about all of this past family history, and all of a sudden things become clear. But even the way that the information is revealed, you're like, is it true or was she just fevered? <laughs> Tavia, this is the part where we have to do our virtual our virtual toast from from our closets. Oh, gosh. So sad. Clink, clink. <laughs> Quick reminder, we love hearing from you, especially now that we're working from home. Join our Facebook group, The Book Club Girls, where you can stay connected with other book lovers and pose your own questions to authors who appear on our show. You can find us at facebook.com slash groups slash The Book Club Girls. And stay tuned after the show for a short exclusive sample from the Summer Country audiobook. Today, we're joined by Lauren Willig, whose book, The Summer Country, is out now. Uh, welcome to the Book Club Girl podcast, Lauren. We are so glad you're here. I want to know, though, where have you set up your recording gig? So right now, I am hunched in a little internal hallway in between my bedroom and the living room. So we've got exciting options on either side of us. On one side, a dinosaur-obsessed toddler might appear any moment. And the on the other, there's a major electrical storm going on. Oh, my goodness. It's like, um, what's that game show the, where, you, where you, let's make a deal? Door number what's- two. Right. It's like the excitement of door A or door B. Yeah, exactly. I'm like, what game show is that? I can't remember. Um, well, I'm in a closet. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I'm in my I'm in my hall closet in Brooklyn and it's very cramped in here. I'm on the floor under a bunch of coats. We all are sacrificing for our art. OK, clearly. I know that this book was something you felt compelled to write. Could you share with our listeners a little bit about why this story in particular so captivated your imagination? Well, this book was one that happened to me by accident. I was on vacation with my two best friends from the Harvard History Department. Um, We had promised ourselves we were going to spend a week doing nothing but lie on a beach and drink fruity drinks with umbrellas in them. But the problem was we got to our Caribbean island and we got on the beach and we realized that the problem is most of us were used to living in libraries all the time. We hadn't seen direct sunlight in ages. So we all got sunburned and mosquito bin and we decided this whole lying around thing wasn't going to work. So instead, we went on a plantation tour because, you know, historians like old things. And while we were in this plantation tour, the tour guide told us about how the plantation had burned down and a child had died in the fire, the Portuguese ward of the owner, except the wrinkle was the child was neither Portuguese nor his ward. She was his daughter by an enslaved woman. And he had snuck her into the household sideways by claiming she was the daughter of a friend by a Portuguese woman. And anyway, the story we were told on the tour was really all about this plantation owner and how after the child died and the house burned, he went mad and spent the rest of his life rocking and rocking and rocking in a chair on the veranda. And you could still hear the chair creaking and it all made a very good gothic ghost story. But what I really want to know what haunted me was who was this child's mother? Where was the mother? Where was she when the fire happened? Uh, where was she before the fire happened? Had she agreed to having her child 
taken away from her so that her child could live a, a life not as an enslaved woman? Or had the child been torn from her? What had this woman's um, relationship been like with the plantation owner? In the real story, the story I heard that day, there were two kids. Um, so clearly there was some sort of longevity in this. You can't really call it a relationship, but in this arrangement. And had there been any affection involved or was it all coercion? And you know, if the plantation owner cared enough about the kids to sneak them into his household, why didn't he free them? Why didn't he free their mother? Was he not able to? But most of all, where was the mother in this and how had she felt? And so being that annoying person in the group, I raised my hand and asked the tour guide, but they couldn't tell me. No one had any idea who the mother was. They just knew that she was an enslaved woman and that was that. And so I went back home to New York. I was supposed to be writing a totally different sort of book, you know, about um, the Napoleonic Wars with spies and hijinks and French farce. And it was a world away from questions of slavery and children being torn away from their mothers and all that sort of fun stuff. But I couldn't get the story out of my head. And when my editor at the time asked me why I wanted to write next, I said, well, there's this book about a lost child and a missing mother that's haunting me. It's a Caribbean plantation. And my editor was like, no, 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 no. Don't write a book set in the Caribbean. You can write anything you want as long as it's set in England. And so I told myself, okay, maybe this book just isn't meant to be. These are very heavy topics. This is not the sort of thing I usually write about. This is not my area of expertise. Maybe this is fate telling me not to write it. So I went and I wrote more books set in England and then a book set in New York and a bunch of other stuff, but I just couldn't get this missing mother out of my head. And finally, my agent, who is a very wise woman, was like, oh my God, write the damn Barbados book already, because otherwise you will never stop talking about it. So I spent two years researching and then I finally wrote the Barbados book. Lauren, so you mentioned the historical research that you did about Barbados during British colonization there. Can you can you tell us a little bit about that research? Sure. I mean, this was a really unusual research experience for me because my historical background is in 17th century England. And most of my books have been set in 19th century England. Or, you know, I've also done 19th century India and 19th century Ireland. But basically everything I've ever written about, I have been drowning in sources. But researching slavery in Barbados in the 19th century, particularly trying to recreate the life of an enslaved woman, was a very, very different experience. Um, I was amazed by how little is available. And, you know, there was one book, so I called in every single favor I had. But what I found so disappointing was a lot of the material I came across was about how you triangulate from an absence, how you try to figure things out when the material just isn't there. So that being said, there was some stuff that was there. I actually did find letters written by enslaved women at in the exact time period I was writing about, which was amazing. And there were some people I was able to use as models for my characters. So my book has two time periods. One is the 1850s after emancipation, and the other is the 18-teens during Barbados's one major slave uprising. And I, the 18-teens plotline is based around um, a forbidden love affair between an enslaved woman and a plantation, a reluctant plantation owner who has returned home after years and years and years of being educated in England and has all sorts of grand enlightenment ideas and really thinks he's going to change things and make a difference. 
and then gets back and finds himself really very much trapped. And so he and he was very much based on a real man named Joshua Steele, who was one of my models for this whole situation because he um, fell in love with his enslaved housekeeper, had two children by her, the real man, not my pretend one. Um, they raised these, they lived together as man and wife, raised their kids together. And when he died, he left his kids his fortune. But the problem was his housekeeper actually belonged to someone else. Um, he leased her. And so their kids were technically another man's property. And this man, Joshua Steele, his sister sued. And the Barbados, the, the courts in England were like, ah, we don't want to touch this with a 10-foot pole. And they punted it to Barbados. And the courts in Barbados ruled that property couldn't own property. It didn't matter that you know this plantation owner had left his goods and chattels to his kids. They were disinherited. And eventually, they were shipped off to England. But so the point was, and what really struck me about the situation was here was a man of power and property, an influential man, a slaveholder, who could not emancipate his own children. Both Jenny, um, who is the slave that um, the plantation owner falls in love with in the book, and Emily, who's in the more modern timeline um, and inherits the, the plantation, both Jenny and Emily are catalysts in their time. For example, when Charles falls in love with Jenny, so much change is set into motion. And when Emily comes to Barbados with the deed to Peverell's, everything gets upended. And I sort of saw that as like a parallel between the two narratives. Are there any other parallels that you drew between 1812 and 1854? Hmm. You know, it's funny. There probably were, if only I remembered them. Um, (laughs) Yeah, this is always a problem. That's why I call author lag, is that by the time a book comes out, you've usually written at least two other books. And so it's very hard (laughs) to remember what you were thinking when you wrote the first one. I've actually, I think people have a lot of time on their hands in quarantine. I've been getting a lot of emails from people asking me very specific questions about my books. And sometimes I feel very embarrassed because people will ask me things. I'll be like, I wrote that 15 years ago. I have no idea what you're talking about anymore. (laughs) Who was that character? I mean, in this case, I would say what they have in common is that um, both Jenny and Emily are very strong women who are constrained by the mores of their time, but don't let it stop them. That they, they find ways to be themselves and to push back against the restrictions. In Jenny's case, I mean, they're very little literal restrictions. She's an enslaved w- woman who's owned by a very possessive, um, vaguely psychotic owner. And in Emily's case, she's, she, her the plot line is set in 1854, which is high Victorian. This is the height of the whole angel of the hearth philosophy. And so she's expected to be ladylike and quiet. And she is just not that type. She's a doer. She's someone who likes to go out there and get things done and run things. I mean, if she were around today, she would be building houses with Habitat for Humanity and doing the Peace Corps and all that. But as a, a young Victorian lady, her, her options are somewhat more limited, but she tries very hard to push back. She desperately wants to nurse. And of course, in the book, a cholera epidemic gives her plenty of scope for that. I love that. Co- I mean, I didn't love the cholera epidemic, but <laughs> I thought it was a very interesting part of the book. It was very intense. It, it just felt like, you know, they were on their feet constantly and there was really no rest for the weary or the sick. You know, I am finding that cholera epidemic way too relevant right now. 
Um, I spent a lot of time researching cholera epidemics and so much of it, the pace of the epidemic, that sense of uncertainty, the grasping at straws for treatment feels way more relevant today than I ever thought it would. When I wrote this two summers ago, I, this was a historical anomaly. It was a curiosity. It wasn't something I would ever thought, I, that I ever thought we would see echoed in our lives today. But now, you know, I flip incessantly through my Facebook feed. And I see all of these articles that keep being circulated, like advice from a Stanford professor on how not to get the coronavirus. And it reminds me so much of the things I read about the sorts of remedies and preventative cures people were trying in Barbados at the time that had no scientific basis. But, you know, people were passing word of mouth, like if you wrap yourself in sheets soaked in vinegar, you won't get cholera. And of course, most of these things were totally wrong and actually made things worse. But no one knew, just like we don't know. Right. It's it's funny because when Eliza and I were talking earlier, we did, you know, we both picked up on that, too, that it really felt very familiar, this cholera epidemic. Yeah, it was remarkable reading reading that section of the novel, you know, in the last couple of weeks. It really felt very, very real <laughs> in an unexpected way. Um, Lauren, I want to switch gears a little bit. I'm I'm curious, there's a few different ways that, that this is approached in the book. How do you think the different characters' um, relationships to the institution of marriage affect their lives in different ways? Yeah, we have a very romanticized idea of marriage. For a lot of my, for certainly for my earlier 19th century characters, it's really, there is a push-pull against the idea of marriage as being an institution for the protection and promotion of property and marriage as companionship. And that's definitely how, you know, one of my main characters, Marianne Beckles, views marriage. She wants to marry the plantation owner next door, so she will be, they, they'll be able to join their lands. And marriage isn't about loving the other person. It's not about understanding the other person. It's really about consolidating your dynastic power and your property. Um, whereas Charles, Charles Davenant, who's the guy who returns home from England when he inherits his plantation, he has the romantic notion of marriage, this idea that you should care about the person you marry. You should love the person you marry. And he doesn't want to marry without love. And he's horrified when he discovers that his parents, who he had always thought were, were, were a love match, it was this scandalous and wonderful story he grew up hearing, that his father had a long-term enslaved mistress. And it just crushes him when he hears it, when he hears it and it makes him all the more determined not to marry for property. You're listening to the Book Club Girl podcast, where our guest this week is Lauren Willig, whose book, The Summer Country, is out now. You can read more about Lauren's book at bookclubgirl.com slash podcast. Coming up on the Book Club Girl podcast, Lauren answers more questions. And later in the show, we ask about her literary white whale. Stick around. This is Tavia. And this is Eliza. And we are here with fellow podcaster and author Leanne Dolan. Hi, I'm Leanne Dolan, co-host of the Satellite Sisters podcast and author of The Sweeney Sisters, a story of love, books, sisterhood, and surprises we discover in our DNA. I can't wait to be a guest on the Book Club Girl podcast in the next episode. This episode is brought to you by The Sweeney Sisters by Leanne Dolan, available wherever books are sold. And we love Leanne's podcast, The Satellite Sisters, so definitely check it out on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever it is you're listening to this episode of the Book Club Girl podcast.
Welcome back to the show. This episode, we're speaking with Lauren Willig, author of The Summer Country. Lauren, one tidbit I loved in the book was how plantation owners had spyglasses all over their homes to keep an eye on their lands. Is this true or is this made up? No, this was one of the things I can't remember. I cannot remember where I plucked it from, but the having spy glasses to see when visitors were coming. So you could have, it would be like magic. Your slaves would be out front with their cool drinks ready for the visitors. That was something I took from one of the um, eyewitness accounts. Well, I loved it. I thought it was fantastic. It was sort of this antique security system um, that I really, <laughs> it, it really captured my imagination. You know, your, your mention of security system also sort of rings a bell with this because one of the things that struck me, so um, the book centers around two catastrophic events. One is, of course, the cholera epidemic in 1854, but the other is the uprising of enslaved people in 1816. And the, the white um, slaveholding population of Barbados was actually relatively small compared to the enslaved population. But there hadn't been a major slave uprising in Barbados since the late 17th century. And the slave owners of Barbados had convinced themselves that their slaves loved them, that they were enlightened slave owners, and that this could never happen on Barbados. It might happen in Haiti. It might happen other places. It might happen in Jamaica, but not in Barbados. And so there was a lot that was written after the fact about basically the lack of security, that people felt themselves so incredibly safe with their enslaved people. Um, not, of course, realizing that, in fact, these people they owned might have minds and desires of their own, and that desire might include not being owned. But one of the things that did strike me was the lack of privacy. And this was something English visitors mentioned, was that there were, you know, servants, uh, servants all over. Servants, you know, in numbers that make Downton Abbey look positively understaffed. And they were, you know, they didn't knock. They were in and out all the time. And so, um, and slave owners just sort of ignored the constant presence of enslaved people around them. And so when the uprising does happen, it is a huge shock to them because they have no security systems in place except the local militia, which they never really expected to have to mobilize. Wow. Lauren, I know that you also write books as a trio with Beatrice Williams and Karen White. And we were curious if that experience informs your writing um, or, or how it influenced the summer country. It's influencing this podcast right now because Beatrice and Karen keep texting me and it keeps flashing up on my phone while I'm talking. So if I'm a little distracted, you can blame Beatrice and Karen. We have this constant text chain where frankly, every time my phone buzzes, I know it's either my mother or my sister or one of them. It's usually one of them. Tell them we said hello. <laughs> we call ourselves the unibrain because we share one brain most of the time. And so they definitely influence the writing of the summer country in that wherever I get stuck, I borrow the unibrain. We all do. So what we'll do is this endless text chain that keeps popping up on my phone will send an SOS being like, OK, so here's where I'm stuck in my manuscript. There were definitely a lot of unibrain SOSs <laughs> while I was writing the summer country. Of course, Lauren, readers who discover you now can go back and binge your Pink Carnation series, but I really want to know if you're working on anything new. Well, I just yesterday sent in the revisions on my next book. Um, this is a far cry from Barbados. The book is called Band of Sisters, 
and will come out in spring, uh, well, hopefully in spring of 2021. It's about a group of Smith alumni who went over to France during World War One to offer humanitarian relief in destroyed villages miles behind the front lines. That sounds wow. amazing. We have one more question for you, Lauren. Every episode on the podcast, we ask our author, what is your literary white whale? And that's a book that you've always either meant to read or started reading and have never finished. So, Lauren, what is your literary white whale? Oh, my goodness. Literary white whale. Um, yeah, I'm actually really having trouble thinking of anything I intended to read that I haven't. I also have very strong book tastes. And I also have a very strong lack of book shame. I feel like some people feel very strongly that they have to signal virtue through their reading choices. And I am totally fine admitting that I binge read a lot of Golden Age British mysteries. <laughs> I love that. You're not the first author who said that they have no... I forget who it was, Tavia. One, one of our guests said, if I want to read something, it's I Jocelyn. just read it. It was who Jocelyn was it? Jackson. Jocelyn Jackson, right. She said she has... She doesn't experience this at all. I guess it's a question a little bit rooted in shame. <laughs> Fantastic. So, Lauren, thank you so much for joining us on the Book Club Girl podcast. We really love talking to you and hearing all about your research and more about the summer country. And um, maybe we'll get to talk to you about Band of Sisters. I cannot wait to come back and talk about Band of Sisters, hopefully not crouching on the floor of a hallway with my children rattling on the locked door. Hopefully next time we'll actually be in the studio with strong coffee and I will be much more coherent, I promise. That was Lauren Willig, whose book The Summer Country is out now. To find out more about Lauren's book and how to buy it, head to bookclubgirl.com slash podcast, where you can also find links to everything mentioned in this episode. Like what you heard? Subscribe on iTunes. Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please give us a rating and leave a review. Another way to help spread the word about the Book Club Girl podcast, tell a friend. It really helps others to find us. You'll hear from us again in two weeks, where we'll be speaking with Susan Wiggs about the Oysterville Sewing Circle. But you can always stay in touch with us in between episodes. We're both on Instagram. Find us at Tavia Reads and at Eliza is Reading. And of course, at Book Club Girl. You can join in our conversations, too. We'll be heading into the studio with Kathy Wang, author of Family Trust. If you have questions for Kathy, post them in the comments on our Book Club Girl Facebook group or call us at 212-207-7336. You can also send us an email, thegirls at bookclubgirl.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if your question gets asked on the show, we'll send you a free book. Free book, free book, free book. <laughs> Before we go, a big thank you to Jordan Gosprey, who produced today's episode. Thank you to Lauren Willig for setting up her own recording studio in her hallway. And a huge thanks to Danielle Bartlett, who makes the poems trees sway in the breeze. Until next time, I'm Tavia. And I'm Eliza. Happy reading. Christchurch, Barbados, June 1812. Marry your mistress. Mr. Davenant repeated. It would be a very good match, Jenny said, and winced at how strident her voice sounded. Honey, not vinegar. But she was desperate, and it was very hard to be honeyed when the devil rode at her heels. As the world accounts such things, said Mr. Davenant quietly, and Jenny knew she was losing him. No, she had lost him before she had come. She had seen it. 
that moment when he saw her mistress, checked and turned away. Her father had seen it too, and there had been no mistaking the triumph on his face. Through the dust and the drought, her father had bided his time. But now, now that harvest was in, the blow would fall soon, she was sure. She wasn't sure what her father had planned for her, but whatever it was, she knew it wouldn't be pleasant. At best, she would be sold. At worst, please, Jenny said, the words scraped from the back of her throat, raw and hoarse. Please, before you say anything, there is something you should know. It touches on my mistress and the colonel. The stories he tells about her. Mr. Davenant was quick, she would grant him that. I don't believe them, if that's what you're concerned about. That is only the smallest part of it. The loamy atmosphere of the old mill pressed hard around her. She looked up at Mr. Davenant, a charcoal sketch of a man in the gloaming, threatening in the abstract. One word from him, and she would find herself flogged, or worse. But she clutched to her the memory of that afternoon, the way he had spoken out against the breaking of nature's laws. This wasn't a man to throw her over to the courts, to see her stripped and flogged. She hoped. Over the months, she had searched relentlessly for a crack in his facade, a sign that his civility was a ploy. But there had been nothing, nothing to show he was other than he seemed. Jenny, expecting hypocrisy, had been first skeptical and then baffled, and finally reluctantly intrigued. She had never met anyone like that before. A man who wore his heart on his sleeve as Mr. Davenant did. What would marriage to Mary Ann do to him? She wouldn't allow herself to think of that. Pity was the privilege of the powerful. She could afford none. Jenny took a step toward Mr. Davenant, her palms sweaty against the fabric of her skirt. I, I know I have no right to ask you for anything. But may I ask that what I tell you remain in confidence? It is more than my life is worth should any of it be known. Mr. Davenant straightened, looking very solemn. On my honor. Honor, a word men used among themselves, but never to her. You say that now. When you are here, you may think otherwise. Whatever you say to me here stays between us. No other will hear. You have my word.